Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Unspoken stigmas and lack of access to available services can often lead to neglected mental health. But this is especially true for people who live and work in rural and remote Australia. I recently had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Jennifer Bowers, who's the inaugural CEO of Rural and Remote Mental Health, which is a non-for-profit and charitable organisation. Jennifer spearheaded the design and delivery of suicide prevention and early intervention programs in order to recognise the unique circumstances and challenges that are faced by people living in rural and remote areas in Australia. These programs are designed to be culturally tailored as evidence-based and awareness raising, and they've been rolled out Australia-wide, receiving high praise for the collaborative learning environment and hands-on activities. Listen in as I speak with Jennifer directly about the state of rural and remote mental health, how she started in the industry, and what drives her to continually make a difference. All right, welcome, Jennifer. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sam. So, Jennifer, you do a lot of work in rural and remote mental health. Tell me about the passion and where the drive came for you to want to get out there and help people with mental health in remote areas. I think that um, I suppose I've spent a long time uh, working in health and mental health, over 30 years now, and one of the real drivers is that um, I had the privilege um, back in the 1990s uh, not only of running a a psychiatric hospital when there were around still 700 patients and we were at the time when there was um, deinstitutionalisation and we were trying to um, get I suppose governments to follow people and, and the money into communities and then I ran Mental Health for South Australia And so having worked at the front line, I really recognised at that time the importance of prevention. Mm. And so some years later, I was, you know, really uh, delighted to um, be appointed the head of this organisation, Rural and Remote Mental Health, and that's now 13 years ago. And we we have evolved, we've researched, designed and developed the programs that exist today, which are focus primarily on prevention Mm -hmm. because that's what's so important in rural and remote Australia. And um, at at also at a time I was involved in a resort on Kangaroo Island and now that was remote and we understood the difficulties of building, working um, and working in a remote location. So all of those life experiences have come to influence Mm -hmm. my passion Mm-hmm. and my interest in, in what we do and understand the culture, the different attitudes and, and the, just the different lifestyles. And they are all different 
hence the differences in how we present our prevention programs. You definitely, the tailored programs is something that you're known for, um, unique to different cultures, different areas, I understand, and I want to delve more into that. If we back it up to, so 30 years ago, when you got in, first got into it, you were working in an institutional facility in Adelaide? No, um, back then I was working in the Commonwealth Government in Canberra, and, and so I was involved in um, aged care, and okay. I actually undertook my PhD in social psychiatry, which is basically basically um, epidemiology. Yeah. And so um, my interest in providing um, an evidence base, doing evaluation, and understanding whether what we do is work, what we do works. That's where the idea of making sure that we not only had an evidence base for our programs and we had the proof that, that what the problems were, but we also measured what we did and the outcomes of that. Now that's been quite a huge task over mm. the last few years, but it's very important to do that. So that goes right back to my early days of, of a research base that I, yeah. I learnt about in, in Canberra at Australian National University back then. And the importance of evidence-based research is critical, right? Well, I think it's really important because, I mean, you can't expect um, governments or philanthropic organisations or whoever to help support programs as we as a not-for-profit are dependent on um, until you can say, uh, you can provide some indication that you are making a change for the better. Uh, that's really mm. difficult to do and it's really difficult to do on a long-term basis. And what people don't realise, it's a very expensive thing to do. So sort of grants that people might get don't necessarily, necessarily cover the, um, the cost of undertaking um, mm. sustainable and long-term research. Yeah. The other issue is, is trying to get people that actually understand the different cultures um, uh, in rural and remote Australia and a lot of the instruments that researchers uh, have developed are very long. Yeah. They're not um, necessarily suited to the literacy of the different groups that we're working with. And it's a turn off for people. Mm. They don't want to do it. So how do we actually get reliable information? That's the challenge we face um, in proving that we have successful programs. And that's where that evidence-based research comes into play. Exactly. Yeah. And and so back in the institution, so when you went to the seven, eight hundred beds you, you mentioned, that, that would have been the largest? In... It was at that time in Australia, yes. Yeah. And how was that experience? Um, well, I had moved from the Commonwealth Government running very large programs, large in terms of money, but not in terms of people administering it, to the converse of that with much less money and a lot of, uh, lot of responsibility and challenges. And of course, that was a huge learning curve but a very rewarding one because um, there, there were changes and it was certainly challenging for um, obviously um, the, the people involved, the, the consumers and their families, um, as well as the unions at that time because, you know, the, every, mm. it, the whole system was being disrupted. And so um, that was very challenging. Um, but equally... Um, showing initiative, trying to, diff to do different things, really was appreciated, particularly by the consumers, because they valued that. And that's what I learnt, where 
it was they that were so important and what they wanted to do and they were being listened to. And I think the same thing's being replicated now with the Productivity Commission. I think mm. there's going to be another major, um, hopefully another um, review, review and restructure of what is a system that's clearly um, um, got deficits. And, and we're really rather hoping that this generational change that might evolve now will be the next stage in the um, evolution of mental health services for Australia. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's really important. And, and with the, with the deinstitutionalisation, so what year, around what year was this when? when that it... was in the um, early to mid-1990s. Okay, and then from then you went and did I... some work for the state? Worked in South Australia, yes. And again, the same issues were were there. There, there was certainly greater advancement in terms of um, devolving um, the hospitals into the community um, and um, a greater understanding of uh, the those sorts of things uh, in terms of um, supporting and community care. And I, I was certainly involved in the development of um, and construction of community centres. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's always been the challenge of getting the money to follow the patients, because of course we know that hospital care is much, much more expensive. And and this is not a cost-saving exercise. This is a, a quality of life and care exercise for those um, that have got mental health issues. So is that where, when you work for the state, that's where you started to really focus and really, uh, I guess, um, you recognise the challenges of these rural, remote communities? Is that where you sort of saw it? Initially. Well, it certainly was very obvious then because, yeah. of course, um, back then uh, it was a huge challenge because, for example, in South Australia, um, um, there, there was a, um, a major focus trying to set up telehealth and the, 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 the televideo system uh, so that um, consultations and support could be provided then. But there were still, you know, delays in transmission and all sorts of other things going on and it was um, well advanced. But there weren't the supports in the country, in the community areas. And that was very obvious back then. Um, but in later years, obviously, um, once I started taking this job, I spent a lot more time um, in Indigenous communities, rural communities and on mine sites, actually understanding what the, they really did face and what the mm. issues were. It's really interesting and quite unique, you know, this, this experience that you've had leading into this. And if we look at then you went to Kangaroo Island, is that correct? Yes, yes, and, and spent and some time. Yep. What was established on Kangaroo Island? Oh, well, it, it was, this was a, a transitional role that I had uh, between leaving mental health and uh, before I took this particular yep. one. And so um, that was involved, I was involved in the design and the development of a, a small resort and, and understanding the logistics of transporting goods and, and, and people, um, how to support people in a remote place. Um, so it was the most beautiful environment. Um, who, who wouldn't like to get up and put their walking boots and their yeah. jeans on every oh, day? And it's, that was absolutely glorious. But equally, there are challenges, aren't there, in, yes. in doing that? Um, and so again, I, I, I learned a lot of things about, not only about 
working remotely, but also starting to promote and articulate what we do. And I don't think in mental health or in suicide prevention or any of those challenging areas, I, I think there's it's very hard to articulate and clearly put a message out that engages with people. And we've spent a lot of time doing that with our programs, is doing something that engages people. And I, I think I started to learn that there about yeah. how to do it from a positive point of view. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that relationship or that understanding and that connection with them is critical in being able to deliver a program, I assume, where they actually, it resonates and can That's exactly impact. right, Sam. You're spot on. And so often in macho environments where there are men who really have never talked about these things before, encouraging them to talk about uh, challenging topics um, and, and personal experiences of, uh, you know, really challenging thing, things. So our programs are designed to be a yarning process so that it's not people aren't being actually talked at. They're, they're encouraged to to share their stories and to communicate and start get and talking about things they've probably never talked about or declared before, but in a safe and trusted environment where the people's respect is there and they actually understand what's happening because at that point, they, at the end of that program, they've got all the information about where to go for help, either nationally or locally, all of the, the helplines that are available and local services. So that way, we just feel that when the need arises, mm. they will be tipped over into knowing exactly where to go for help. So we have tried to follow up and get people to call in and, and we did have some phone lines in the early days. And you know what? Nobody rang them. And we found out they were leaving our programs confident, uplifted. They had the information. It's like a physical illness. If you know what's wrong with you, you do feel much more confident about what to do, where to mm. go and how to get help, all that sort of thing. Well, the same thing has occurred. So in 2006, I assume this, um, is that when? Yes, that's when we started. That's when you started the Rural Remote Mental Health. Yes. Uh, and so, and it's a registered tra charity. Yes. Uh, and you deliver programs to rural and remote communities. Yes. To people individually, to health, mental health professionals as well. Um, they're, they're for the community. They're delivered okay. by and for the community so that they're community programs. But we have a train the presenter yes. uh, workshop as well. And so it is it is embedded in that community where those presenters have been trained. So more and more we're trying to uh, train and, and um, skill uh, people. They do not have to be professional speakers by any means. They need to have a conversation. We provide them with the, the wonderful videos that are engaging and shot by real people in real places. Um, we give them all the collateral, the workbooks, the handbooks, the caps, so that they go away well-equipped, not only well-informed, but have got some information to share with their family and friends. Yes. And the focus on, you've chosen to focus really on effective prevention. Absolutely. And tell me why. Because often in rural and remote areas, but it's not just rural and remote areas, it's often situations like in workplaces and mm. other, other areas where people um, really 
don't feel confident about speaking about their issues for a whole lot of reasons, which I'll talk about later today. And so um, really, we are looking to expand what we do. So we're really looking for some resources to go and develop some, um, the similar program that fits with the, the fishers and the seafood sector. There's a range of other sectors where we think particularly culturally specific programs fit like in the defence sector or the defence industries, people where um, um, areas where people are working quite independently and often remotely and in yes. isolated places. So if we look at that then, so the, really the main focus that you're building, you're establishing these programs to really try and target or help and assist mining companies, fishing companies, defence, where people are going away and working for long periods of time in rural or remote areas and then even though they're not living there full time they might come back to the cities or regional area regional cities you're really saying well there's a really there's a big challenge here and we want to address it and tell me more about that because the mental health obviously is the overarching name or mental ill health that that is um that is probably going to be a challenge in these situations but is it alcohol related, drug related, is it comorbidity of a lot of things as far as being away from family and loved ones for extended periods of time? Is it? It's all of those things. And it's it's all of those um, uh, determinants of, um, I suppose, mental ill health that, that play. So we know from our research that um, the, the precursors to that are relationship stress, financial stress, um, um, and, and of course, in some cases, uh, drugs and alcohol, as well as the normal symptoms and signs that we would start to look for. So the whole idea of the information that we provide is so that people are aware of those things early. They understand what to look for. They know they've got to go and seek help. And, and so it's very proactive in terms of encouraging them to seek help, seek help early, identify what the problems are in themselves or their family. So for example, what's a really, a really good example is, uh, for example, um, guys that fly in and out of mm. mine sites, they're in an ideal situation because once they're informed, they're on a site and for maybe you know one to three weeks now, generally, then um, well, all of that. But if they've got some information, they go home. They can see if there's any change at home because they'll have been away for a while. They could pick up changes in their family, and equally, when they come back to work, they could see if there's their mates aren't travelling too well either, and and they might feel more confident at this stage to say, look, I don't think you know, what's wrong, mate? Yeah. So you see, I think that um, once they've got that information and understand what to look for, I think we're opening up um, a really supportive environment. And we know from our research on the mine sites that the guys are much more likely to help their mates than really to, to look after themselves initially. Yes. And so is your, is your approach to really talk to or get to the individuals themselves or is it going to the companies and saying listen we want to present we want to give some information to your employees how are you approaching it and um, i think our major approach particularly in mining is clearly the companies yeah. you can't do anything without 
their support and yes. commitment to it. And uh, I believe that uh, our mining program is by far and away the most comprehensive. It actually lasts for a year and it's fully integrated with their you know, physical health and safety programs through toolbox talks yeah. and videos. Um, but in the generally, we are dependent on, on other organisations, government and other agencies to fund this. People do not come and pay to go to a prevention program. So we do need the support of, of communities, of organisations, community groups to um, sponsor and support uh, what we do as well as companies. So these large companies don't pay for this? They pay for the mining program, oh, yes, okay. and we and that allows us then, uh, we probably barely break even, but in many ways, uh, what we do make, we're then able to reinvest in yeah. the updating because we provide stats and, and figures, so it means that we've got to review mm. and update our programs um, and, and continue to do the evaluations and research because researchers don't come cheaply either. Mm. So um, each of our programs uh, do go through an evaluation process. With these remote working industries, are there any certain uh, remote working companies, are there any certain industries that are more affected than others? Or are you seeing that this is a challenge across the board, whether it's fishing, whether it's mm. mining, construction? So uh, in terms of uh, the prevalence of mental distress, um, yeah. for example, my research shows that um, over 28% of people uh, do um, suffer from mental distress and we do know that the people in these remote in the mine sites the mine yes sites. Okay. however we know that the ones that are most distressed feel that there is a very significant stigma on site and they do not feel able to talk about it so they mm. are really really at risk um, and uh, other research recently has found around a third. So all of mm. our research does line up now in terms of about a third of that workforce. Yeah. Now the same applies to the seafood and fishing sector. Other people have done research in that area and uh, it's clear that their prevalence is similar because again, they're working in isolation, in challenging environments, um, very in some ways similar, but there are, as they point out, also equally other major differences in, in the way they work and the way uh, the, their, their industry works. Um, we, we're not finding the prevalence quite so much amongst some farming and agricultural communities. However, what we've found out from our programs is that a very large proportion that are coming to both the community workshops and the train the presenter, around 14% have attempted suicide. So wow. the national average is about 3.3%. So we do know that we have a lived experience um, contribution to our workshops but not everybody wants to declare that. We know that from the research and it's anonymous. Could be higher. And it could be. So the, the, the point is though, that we are capturing those people. They are aware, they're proactively involved. And so I think we have a peer, potential peer workforce, but it's not necessarily being declared and we don't force them to do that. Tell me a little bit more about that peer and the peer worker and, and the stigma or the, the force ability you feel like is getting pushed upon. 
Um, I think that that's going to become a very important discussion to have now into the future, particularly with, I think, what will come out from the Productivity Commission, because I think it's really important that we um, support a peer workforce. However, um, following my um, conversations and listening to people at the conference I've just been in in, uh, in New Mexico in the US, is that I think we need to define better what peer means. I think we need to understand that because you could have a peer worker in terms of somebody you work in the workplace. But in many cases, it refers to a peer who has um, um, had a lived experience. Yes. Um, and it could be a, a carer, they're a peer also. So I think we just need to be a little bit careful about that because our experience is to a degree that not everybody declares that they've got a problem. And in a workplace, I think people are still reluctant to because of the stigma attached to it, but equally the risk they feel of um, exposing um, their personal life. Being labelled, so, you think? Being labelled. Yeah. And so I think we need to have a, a fairly um, a good definition and a discussion about mm -hmm. what the peer workforce might look like because I think that they do need, um, everybody needs support working in this environment. And um, in the US, they have um, a lot of uh, credentialing and um, as training and support. Um, and, and they become very sophisticated, the whole system's very sophisticated and admirable. And particularly in rural and remote areas where there aren't, like here, there's very limited numbers of practitioners of all um, disciplines. And so I, th there is a huge opportunity there, but I do think that it needs to be done well. And one of the things that I think our organisation could move into in the future is actually training up people and supporting them to work in rural and remote areas based on our experience. Mm. It's, uh, it's really good. When, when you talk about training uh, helpers and community leaders, I think you referred to that a little bit in throughout your website and some of the material that you've, that you've got. Tell me, who, who are these people and are they are they just the community-based people like mums and dads? Are they uh, are they individuals? Are they just in work uh, in, a, in a company? What who are these? People? Well, I think that they're. Um what we've encouraged originally was like you may be a practice nurse or the pharmacist or some community leader but really uh, what we've found is that we there are so many people that have been touched uh, by families or friends that are involved so we've got a huge range of uh, people from indigenous communities natural helpers people that are um, either leaders or caring people within their communities. Um, and of course, we also try to, to um, uh, provide the managers and those of the first responders on a web, on a mine site to understand more about and be more empathetic to those that uh, are working on site and might be struggling. So it really is by and for the people. It's not clinical. It is it is essential info information that people need. It could be anybody willing to put their hand up Absolutely. and say, I want to be someone that can have a discussion, that can help support people that are feeling... Yes, and, and who yes. feel that they they want to do something because it's it's not onerous. It, it is 
um, uh, it, we provide the support, we provide all the information, but equally in the very early days, what we noticed was that, you know, in some of the Indigenous or some of the rural communities, you'd see some of the older people, particularly some of the older aunties, and they'd be sitting there and they could see what was happening and they could understand what was happening, but they weren't empowered in any way. So once you've sort of seen some of these programs in action, boy, oh boy, they're well and truly empowered by the end of it. And it's very hard to shut them up because this is the first time often that they've been sort of given permission to have a, have a yarn and have a chat about things. So they, they can see what's happening. And that's what's so fantastic about it because that way things can change from the grassroots up. Mm. You mentioned before about uh, people not being able to feel like they can open up or tell someone on their when their job on their mind side on when they're working remotely how much of this is a culture problem and and if so is it a leadership challenge within that company it's definitely a leadership challenge and i do think the stigma is is a huge issue in all of our research particularly on mind sites stigma comes up as the major factor that prevents um, people declaring a problem doing anything about it um, so the the answer is it is a challenge because um, we have employee assistance providers at the end of the day who can come in and help after a critical incident or a near miss or we're after a problem but really it's about trying to prevent to, to allow people to, to honestly um, um, communicate with a mate or a friend and declare a problem. And that, that's often the, the real challenge. And the other thing is, once you've been to a lot of sites like I have over the years, they're a little bit gossipy and a little bit, you know, um, so you've got to be careful about what you say and they are careful about what they say. So I've often found that, you know, I'll be in the, the mess or the wet mess and um, once they get to know you and trust you, that, they actually don't have a mental mental illness or even they have problems and challenges. And when you think that you've got a driver that goes up and down the hole several times a day and that problem is circulating in his head mm. it plays on his mind and is he really concentrating mm, as well as he should be maybe uh, so when i sit down when i used to sit down and talk to them and have a chat and they'd line up a glass of wine in front of me that was like saying i want to have a chat you know at the end of the day that's all they needed a confidential chat it's not it's not a psychologist. They don't need a clinician. They need somebody to talk to that just gets it off their chest. Mm. Okay, so it's providing that safe environment. Exactly. For them to be able to talk. And how much is it related to specifically males versus females? I think it's both, but um, um, more to obviously with men. Um, the women on site um, probably, well, women generally uh, a little bit more able to declare an issue or or, or or somehow find a way around to have a chat about it. Um, I do think that, and of course on mine sites, you'll find that over 90% of people on them are men anyway. Mm. Um, but equally, farmers tend to bottle it up and uh, still do. Um, and so these programs do encourage them to to I suppose open up a little bit. The real challenge, of course, with the with the rural and the, the farming sector is that um, 
it's very hard for them to leave their property, particularly in times of drought or mm. or other um, environmental issue, you know, problems. Uh, so, trying to actually get to the farmer as opposed to his wife or his family is often quite challenging. But um, I think more and more there is more awareness, and and I actually do touch on mm. the question: Are we are we making a difference? And are attitudes changing um, um, over the past 20 or 30 years? Have they changed? They've changed enormously in terms of um, physical health and safety. You look at the obsession with, you know, uh, PPE gear. Um, it's huge. Mm. Well, are we obsessed with improving mental health? Mm, we're getting there, but I don't think we're there yet. Mm. Before we move on from the large uh large mining companies or the remote working, big, uh, the big remote working companies. With the leadership, so you're going in to talk to the individuals, which is really important, but do you have programs, uh, who's addressing the leadership side of it? Um, we do, we certainly do um, have a program called uh, Mental Health for Leaders. Okay. Um, and that is delivered on every site for the leadership. But we've now recognised that that is should be available more broadly and we're looking at promoting that a lot more broadly because we know it's had great success. We know that over 90% of and the, some of the figures I've put up today in my presentation show that the leaders on those sites say that it's been hugely valuable but more importantly than anything else they think it's been a very good use of their time. Mm. Now that to me is important and they value the, the company by for, for them for putting this on. So yeah. we know that they value it, but equally uh, there's a whole range of other sectors that we could go into and we'd look, mm. we're looking forward to expanding that quite significantly. Because I guess the thing is a bit of a challenge is if you see them, okay, let's get them in, they can do the program and we tick the box, we, you know, let's, but then has something really changed from the top down as far as the culture? Do they still feel safe to report it up the line if they're feeling anxious or they're, they're mm. experiencing depression? Mm. Um, are you finding that that's... Um, in fact, I conclude my presentation today by talking about that because you can't just tick the box with a one-off something. Mm. It is a long-term cultural change that we're looking for and that is why our programs and our videos are spread out over e a year mm. because, um, in fact, we, we've got some companies that want us to keep going further than that and so we've got to actually design add-ons to our programs to keep it going. Mm. And that's what's really important. So, so many programs, it's very difficult to get onto a mine site and it's very difficult and very expensive to work in rural and remote Australia. Mm. And people don't realise that. And so it's a huge commitment on the part of whoever's sponsoring that to actually get us out there. And so the other point is, I think that we wish to, um, go face to face with people because there's a lot of programs that are e-health, we can access phones, we can access all sorts of things, but I absolutely believe that the personal interaction is really important in the first place because people get to trust you, understand it, and then we'll feel more confident about contacting somebody else, another phone line, and ultimately down the track, maybe even us if we can find some early intervention to actually work with them, which is what we're looking to do now. So you think the uptake and the 
capacity for people to want to reach out really starts with a personal safe conversation with somebody and then after that you're saying they're more than more likely then to follow up and be able to use those online remote services by telephone that's right sam okay. yes tell me um i know you do a lot of work with unique circumstances as far as uh, and sorry and challenges faced by aboriginal and torres strait islander people uh, and remote communities this has been something that is a big focus of yours as we move now from corporates to the remote communities and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, tell me about how how that's evolved and how you're developing and, and how you're finding working with them. Um, well, that was the, the major focus when we first started 13 years ago. And um, over that time, our program Deadly Thinking has evolved and developed to probably being um, our most well-known and uh, most and best recognised program. Um, it has changed and evolved, but it is essentially uh, both in terms of imagery, language and structure run by and for Indigenous people. Um, we're very much, um, uh, the couple of us that are involved in that are very much behind the scenes um, and uh, the evolution of it's been very important um, and um, just now we're finalising a new element of it called Deadly Thinking Youth for 12 to 20 year olds. Yeah. And um, we're in the process of having that evaluated by the Sachs Institute in Sydney um, and so uh, there's a huge demand for that, but we've got to get it right. We've got to know what's right and wrong. And it can be delivered very flexibly into schools, into local um, organisations, be it sporting or youth. Um, we need to look at how we get support to roll that out mm -hmm. uh, because it's not necessarily that easy to get mm -hmm. everybody to fund those things. And yet we know that the evidence and, and it goes without saying the evidence is there that there's a huge demand for that um, across all areas. It's not just in remote areas, it's in uh, regional and even metropolitan schools and it's equally applicable there. And, and tell me about the engagement with the Indigenous uh, communities as well to establish this program. So I suppose that um, all the way along the line, we have consulted communities now for probably the 13 years that we've been in existence about yeah. um, the language, about the imagery. There, there are different words for um, Ganji and other, uh, other things that we've had to be aware of. So that's only one aspect of it. So we have to find the right people to train up in the right region because there's sometimes um, various um, different cultural aspects, uh, different family groups, all those sorts of things that we have to be sensitive about. And so um, the, the fact is that um, it is run by and for Indigenous people or, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And that's critical, isn't it, to make sure that you have them helping to develop that and really take ownership so that it's going to be effective. Without doubt, and and uh, we have um, an Indigenous um, board member 
Um, he's he comes from the Northern Territory, and so we we do make every effort to make sure that um, it is well informed, uh, it is evaluated, um, and so and we we actually track where all of our programs are being delivered um, by and for each of the communities. And we do have very passionate, um, um, a particular group of very passionate senior trainers who, who do um, almost nothing else but deliver the programs. And so the mode that it's being delivered is mostly face-to-face -face combined with online? It is all face-to-face -face okay. for one day. If it is a train the presenter, um, it's two days because they go and, and do the, the program the first day and then the second day they come come back and then they are then they decide um, what elements they would like to practice presenting. Mm -hmm. And so they're given um, support to um, work 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 on what they're presenting, how they're presenting it. They've given access to the videos and all the workbooks that we've got, and not only workbooks, but manuals that give them guidance about what questions to ask, how to have that, con how to have that conversation. And so they're supported throughout all of that by our program manager. So you're really educating them, but also empowering them to then go back to their community and be a leader and present. That's exactly and right, Sam, yeah. yes. I mean, it sounds like a really good model. Are you finding this the success? Have you got some data? The demand, yes, we do have a lot of data, and and um, the demand. Um, there are some areas where we've just done so much of it because people have heard about it, and the demand's great. But there are other areas where we need to c concentrate on um, to make sure that we can get a better and even distribution across Australia. But if you on our website, we do track. And you can see on our front page of our website where each of the programs have been delivered, and and um, and so um, we we really try to make an effort. But you see, some of these places are very inaccessible, and there are certainly challenges everywhere. Um, not only just for adults, but for the youth as well. So. Um, that that's a real challenge for us because we don't go anywhere unless we're invited so but we do use social media a lot it's very popular and a lot of our um all of our programs have got a, a major a major social media presence and that all of the programs can be accessed and tracked via social media and on our website what are some of the challenges that indigenous remote uh, rural Indigenous communities are facing? Um, I think that there's, for example, um, in terms of youth, um, there, there's often um, pressure for, and, and there are opportunities for young people to go away. And I think that they're drawn between um, remaining with their family and their community that they've grown up with and yet moving off to seek an education. And there are some fabulous uh, schools that are supporting uh, students to um, to get their education and yet go back to their community, particularly in Alice Springs and other places. So there there are those those tensions between um, living a traditional life and yet um, 
obtaining an education. So I see that as a, mm -hmm. a challenge. Um, and of course, also um, th with droughts and other things, uh, there are environmental challenges um, with communities, the remote communities. So there's a range of issues that they face in terms of their sustainability. How you've been in mental health for some time, uh, which I mean, the experience is, is really amazing that you've had, and as I said before, quite unique. How do you feel we're progressing in being able to deliver effective educational programs or improve, if we look at the overarching aspect, improving mental health for rural and remote areas? Um, well, firstly, let me say that I absolutely believe it's not just rural and remote. I, I think that we need to focus much more on prevention. I think across the board, um, um, there's some research um, just done recently by Professor Jorm, who in fact was one of my PhD supervisors, mm -hmm. And he's just done some analysis of data. And so after, after over the last 17 years, um, he shows that mental health is not getting any worse. What's happening is that we are diagnosing depression and anxiety um, way, way better. And that um, um, Australians have rapidly embraced treatments. So what's happening is that um, really treatments are not up to standard because we've got so many people that are sick or prevention has been neglected and that's his conclusion and it's my conclusion as well so for rural and remote australia it's an issue because i think they um, need more prevention and more support early interventions because it's still going to be a struggle no matter how many people we train up to retain them in rural and remote areas. But equally, I think the Productivity Commission and the future system, whatever it's going to look like, has to have a lot more prevention in it because um, it's very hard to prove um, the return on investment to any anybody investing in mental health. Um, the other issue is that um, government, government, the terms of office of government um, don't necessarily reflect the return on investment that they might invest in. Mm. So um, there is a little bit of research to say that for every dollar uh, invested, there's a $2.30 return on investment. This yeah. research was done, commissioned by Beyond Blue. Mm -hmm. However, Equally, in that research, they also indicated that for every dollar invested, there could be um, a $15 return on investment, for example, on mine sites. Mm. And that could apply to anywhere else where there is a high prevalence of mental distress. So my argument is we need to um, have a government that's prepared to commit to prevention for the long term. Mm. Uh, I agree. And, and it's a big challenge, but nonetheless, uh, I think it's really important, especially with what you're doing is focusing specifically on rural and remote mental health, because I mean, if you try and do everything, you tend to do everything, a lot of things poorly. So the fact that you're really trying to uh, get in there and make a big difference in rural and remote communities is, is amazing and inspirational. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we all acknowledge that there's some challenge 
that lays in front of us still with what's ahead. Tell me a little bit about you are you're a believer in continuing education and yourself as far as trying to get better, see what else is going on out there. You've been you go to America once a year for a, a conference over there to learn and see what's happening over there. Tell me about the importance of ongoing education for yourself, but also what you're seeing, what the trends are in other countries and, and how it compares. I think I think the the challenge is having been around for some time um, is that you can get sucked into the minutiae of the day-to-day routines and the challenges um, that we face in doing our jobs. It's very hard to lift lift yourself out of that environment, analyse the bigger picture, the strategic picture, and then think about how does that relate to what I do on a day-to-day basis. And so um, being on the board of Mental Health Australia provides me with a privileged better view of strategic mental health and suicide prevention across Australia. Um, And that equally allows me to better understand what's happening locally. But to have time away and to listen to other people talk about things and what their challenges are, for example, what's happening in New Mexico, um, out in the grassroot areas, um, what's happening with... um, I sat next to a guy who was a warden in a state a state prison and what's happening there in terms of the sorts of inmates that they have, the corrections. And basically they are the mental health service providers because there's no one else. So you've got somebody who's either a policeman or a warden and the majority of people in those have got um, a mental illness. And listening to him was just so disturbing um, and yet he was so compassionate and understanding coming to a conference like this wanting to learn more. Mm. So you sort of start to realise that in rural and remote America there are equal challenges um, but maybe to different degrees to what we have here. So um, it's really quite eye-opening. The other thing is that um, in, in the US I've found that it makes me think that there are, um, there's a huge f- emphasis on veterans. There are a lot of uh, retired veterans um, and a lot of them are very well looked after, but apparently two-thirds of them don't get support. So here I'm thinking, well, I've met many veterans out on mine sites um, met, and there's a huge um, effort put in by the Veterans Affairs Department here to support them. So there are similarities, but equally there are differences in how we approach them. And a lot of veterans live in rural, the edge of, you know, urban Australia or in in regional areas. And I think, well, that's another area where maybe we should start to look at supporting this hidden community, these hidden communities with different cultural approaches. What do you think we're doing amazingly well in Australia as it relates to mental health? Well, believe it or not, relative to what I've seen elsewhere and what I've just said, we do prevention. 
the, it, the, the system in the US, for example, with so many states, is really about just doing their, their best to support the yeah. people that are there. So in a sense, we, we do have um, uh, some level of prevention and early intervention, but it's not structurally as, um, it's very different in the US. And I, and I think that's why that I, I get such a good audience because they're really interested in it and they're very keen to learn more um, and uh, understand what we do. But I think they have trouble resourcing that sort of thing. What lies ahead for the future of yourself and the rural and remote mental health? Well, I think that um, it's my responsibility to ensure that um, I advocate for um, prevention, uh, particularly in rural and remote areas, for culturally tailored programs for as many sectors as we can work into the future. So it's a matter of looking at how can we spread our wings having learnt what we've learnt and, and, and it will be up to me to leave this organisation in a really good position when I retire. Who, is there anyone in particular that's been an inspiration for you, uh, whether it's career-wise, personally? Um, this is probably an interesting question because um, I think I've, I've moved around and I'm, I've, I think it's more to do with um, um, leaders in particular areas, not, not particularly in mental health, but in um, um, leaders in different sectors who have got empathy and understanding and have taken a stand. So uh, without going naming names, it's those sorts of leaders that um, understand the issues, um, particularly around um, workforce and uh, workforce issues and, and not just mental health or suicide prevention, but those that have got um, a corporate um, well-being approach, if that's yeah. the, such a focus that I, I think I admire. Um, and, um, and we would work, want to work with those sorts of organisations, be they not-for-profit or government or, or yeah. uh, for-profit. And understanding it's one thing, but also taking action and doing something about it is, is the part I assume that... It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. That's really good. Are there any particular books that you can recommend to listeners about um, whether it's personal development or professional? Anything that you've read? Um, well, I think um, at this stage, um, um, I've contributed a chapter to a book that's going to be published um, in the not too distant future. And um, that chapter is obviously about um, promotion and prevention in rural and remote Australia. And it's a handbook for people working in rural and remote Australia. So my sense is that um, it will be a state-of-the-art, valuable resource that just does not exist now. And when's that due to be released? I don't have a date, okay. but um, it's, it's gone, to, gone to typesetting. Sure. And if people want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Um, I'm available uh, via the website, yep. via LinkedIn. The website is www rrmh.com.au Perfect. Uh, well, Jennifer, I think it's it's been an amazing conversation. We thank you for your time, but more importantly, for the, uh, the enthusiasm, but also the actual work that you're doing in, in delivering programs to rural and remote communities, which is such 
a big challenge, no doubt, that uh, that we have ahead of us. But the work you've done over the last 13 years and the organisation is truly admirable. And we're lucky to have you out there doing such a role and playing such an important part in the um, mental health for, for people in these communities. So thank you very much for your time and thanks very much for your effort in the leadership you're showing. Thank you, Sam. Um, I appreciate that and um, appreciate the effort that you've put into researching and, um, <laughs> you know, the background work that's gone into putting the questions together because it, it's made a big difference <laughs> to being able to answer them. No worries. Thanks very much. <laughs>